Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 23rd, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Abe, uh, you watched or read about Biden's uh, interview with David Muir of ABC. Uh, in which he said some interesting things. You want to go there and we'll try to. Yeah, I, I, I just watched what clips I saw uh, on social media. Um, he didn't say things that were that interesting. I mean, I think, you know, with him, half half the the interest is in um, how he manages or fails to communicate uh, while he's saying what he's what he's saying. Uh, for example, in this case, he was talking about um, uh, at home. COVID tests, and he said he referred to them as pills, saying that he wished to that 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 with foresight he wished that he had ordered I forget how many he said, but doesn't matter some huge gross of of some some massive number of pills he said uh, months back before uh, the advent of Omicron uh, when he meant home tests. Uh, basically, the interview, the clips I saw was David Muir challenging him, pushing him on. Um, the the bold falsehoods that he that he laid out in his speech uh, two days ago, Muir, Muir saying, "How did you not see this coming?" Biden said, "Well, no one saw it coming." And David Muir said, "Well, you know, everyone has been talking this entire time since the start of the pandemic about about the danger of uh, a runaway variant that that could be uh, far more transmissible than other ones." Biden didn't have a particularly good or uh, coherent answer for that. Um, the, I guess the most actual interesting thing that was said was in regards to Biden running again. He said that he plans on running again at this point, uh, that if he is in good health, with if he's in the health that he's in now, which he says is good, he will run again, although he's a big believer in uh in fate, a respecter of fate, and fate has intervened in his life many times, so who knows what the future will bring. Then uh, Muir asked him, well, if, if Donald Trump runs again, uh, if Donald Trump is your challenger, will you run? And Biden said, oh, are you trying to tempt me? Of course, I'll, of course, I'll. if it's Trump, I'll definitely run. Uh, why wouldn't I run against Donald Trump? So um, the only, what, what interests me about that is that I think it's, it's, more, of a, it's more of a temptation to Trump as if he didn't have one already um, to run again. You know, there, there are credible reports that when when Obama zinged Donald Trump way back when at the uh, at, a, at a White House uh, press dinner, uh, I don't even remember the year. 2011. Uh, 2011. Thank you. Um, when Obama was was directly. Um, teasing Trump in front of everyone saying that uh, he'd never be president. That 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 went some significant way in 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 Trump's decision to actually run. Can I add something about the way this interview was handled? Uh, I agree with Abe. I mean, David Muir actually was trying to press Biden on a couple of things, but he didn't. There were two things that were notable to me. One is how the press immediately and and continually covers for for Biden's fumbles, not just verbal stumbles. They are now actively reshaping how they report on this interview. Uh, to make sure that everybody knows that this is what he really meant. He didn't really correct himself. He was corrected by the media who then 
puts out like in the Politico newsletter this morning, they're like, they just they just take away the quotes and put in tests as if he said that when he said pills. So like any confusion he makes, they immediately correct for him with very little comment on it, which they never did for Trump, obviously. And that's a small thing I know. But the larger thing is that they don't press him on his own statements in the same way. So he has been saying that he's going to ramp up testing to like war footing. Remember that? That was in what, January, February, almost every month since he's been inaugurated. He has talked about how his administration is going to fix this problem of not enough tests. And they clearly haven't done that. But there's very little pushback. There's no, oh, you were gaslighting the public. Oh, you were lying to us. No, no, it's just, well, he'll get around to it. I mean, that that sort of, the, the, the extremely generous approach to everything the Biden administration claims it's doing and the lack of skepticism and rigor, except for a few uh, outlets such as ProPublica, which has been looking into some of the reasons why we don't have more of these tests, it's noticeable. It's really noticeable to those of us, at least, uh, you know, who are a little bit right of center here and have watched the coverage of, of conservative and Republican presidents for, for decades. So it's to me, the constant correction is a minor thing, but it's part of this broader attempt to just let's all make sure we prop up this guy as looking competent when the American people's by judging by polls clearly don't feel the same. You know, I, I, that's a that's a very fine observation, and I'm not sure that it matters, or or if anything, it will have a boomerang effect because it thickens the bubble around Biden and makes pe- people him and his people believe that he is not paying a price for errors and mistakes that he makes. But it is unmistakable uh, that. He, for example, said there would be half a billion free tests distributed in the country, and they're not. It's not going to happen for like five or six weeks. And if the tests need to be distributed because we're in the middle of an Omicron surge, the Omicron surge could be over before the tests are distributed. So uh, people will be looking for the tests. They will have heard him say that there are all these free tests. There was one free test site opened for distribution of free home tests uh, somewhere in DC yesterday. And there was a three hour long line just to collect the tests. That's not good. Like it doesn't help a presidency or an administration to believe their own propaganda or to think that because they're not getting a hard time from a friendly press, that they're not going to suffer the consequences of their actions in fact quite the opposite like the feedback loop is broken under those circumstances and i i I don't think that you know it's like uh the administration began we talked about this the other day uh you know under under promising in the hopes it would over deliver right 100 million shots in arms when they were like it was totally on track for there to be 100 million shots in arms by the 100th day it like it was like setting a goal and an easily achieved goal. Now they're kind of, they've gotten themselves completely uh, ass backwards in this, in this regard. They're like promising to confront the virus, you know, on a war footing and to do this stuff and to, you know, have a, have a gigantic social infrastructure bill and all of that. And they're now over promising and under delivering, which is maybe the worst thing you can ever do in any circumstance as an employee, as a business, as as anything is to under, you know, is to overpromise and underdeliver. And this now seems to be where they've gone with with all this. And um, you know, you can understand why and you can understand the temptation. It's just 
you know, you need somebody in the president's ear saying, Caesar, thou art mortal. This isn't working. But it's very hard to get a feeling for that in in the White House. You don't go out around the world. You don't really know necessarily. People are all standing there trying to kiss your ring. Like you've got, you've spent all your life trying to get there. You're there. You know, you have the entire federal government at your disposal. And how you keep touch with what it is that's going on except for sort of abstract poll numbers is very difficult. And I think they've just lost the lost the threat. Well, this is going to be a very interesting period in this particular surge because it is a Washington, D.C. based surge, uh, quite unlike just about any other surge uh, where it was in the far flung hinterlands and maybe it was in the south, which had some cultural resonance for people in the north who looked down on the south, or maybe it was in the Midwest where it had other cultural signifiers. This one's located in, in the nation's capital. Well, and at least eight lawmakers have already got this thing. Um, so it's it's everywhere, it's all around them. And it is affecting the epicenter of public policy, which is still all evidence to the contrary, notwithstanding, focused on containing the spread. So this thing does one of two things. Either it convinces lawmakers that that battle is lost for good and forever, and that they need to move on to more attainable objectives, or it compels them to double down because what their their response to it so far has been to ad- adopt a posture similar to March 2020 while saying it's not March 2020 anymore. So this will be approving one way or the other um, how they how they handle an outbreak that is in their backyards among people who they thought did all the right things and were never going to get this thing because it could be protected against as long as you observed the appropriate behavioral rights and rituals. And it's not. It's it's actually I shouldn't laugh. It's not fun. I have friends who've who've, who've gotten this variant and are mild, you know, they're they're vaccinated and most are boosted. So they're experiencing a mild cold and the 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 quarantine before Christmas. It's canceled a lot of people's holiday plans. That's all terrible. I'm not not making light of that experience. But the moral challenge, actually listening to some friends who were happy to call, you know, uh, the governor of Florida death Santis and say, oh, he's killing people. And this is terrible. And look at all those idiot Trump voters, blah, 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 blah. To now, now they're trying to wrap their head around. Wait a minute. I got it. I got it. Which, of course, those of us are like, anyone can get it. It's not a you, you obviously want to get vaccinated. You want to do the right thing. But but it can still get you even if you do everything right. It's a virus. But the moral clarity that they had just just a month or two ago is has dissipated and they don't know what to replace it with. And I do think that explains a bit of the special pleading to the Biden administration. It's like, well, now we really need the government to tell us what to do because we did everything right and we still got it. And that impulse concerns me, you know, as someone who doesn't think the government should solve all of our problems. But it does. I have a lot of sympathy for their anxiety about, wait a minute, how could this have happened to us? We are the media or we are the people who in public health who know best. It's it's perhaps a necessary humbling for a lot of them, and maybe it'll help them rethink some of the approaches they've taken in their rhetoric. Uh, I should say that my money is on the most irrational outcome um, that, yeah, that we're not going to see the, the rational response to this, which is to let go and let God. We've done our best. The idea that you can contain this thing, this now is completely uncontainable based on everything we're seeing and witnessing right now. All of us are vaccinated. We all have boosts. We all got it anyway. That's the rational response. I fully anticipate that there will be some appeal to, uh, I I don't even know the forces 
that Joe Biden can can muster because government is is uh, omniscient and omnipresent and all powerful. That that will be their instinct. That's their comfort place. That's their happy place. They will go there first before they come to the logical conclusion about what this means. Um, can I can I make a a, a theological point? Um, so one of the virtues of the death Santis line, right, which is like you're getting what comes to you because you are a sinner, right? You are you've sinned. You haven't you haven't been vaccinated. You haven't uh, done the right things. You haven't mitigated strategies. You haven't suffered the way we suffer, right? You you uh, we've we've agreed to uh, you know to sort of limit our lives. You won't, and now you're getting it, and you deserve it, right? That's the that is the uh, line. Okay, so. You know, uh, the most important uh, prayer in the Hebrew liturgy is the Shema. Hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema, which is said, I don't know, several times a day, uh, <clears throat> is the central prayer of Judaism. And it's a, it's a tricky prayer because it is the, you know, is the affirmation of monotheism. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. But it, as it goes on, uh, in the Shema, the Shema makes a very specific set of promises and threats, right? It says, uh, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Take these instructions and press them on your children. Recite them when you stay at home, when you're away, when you lie down, when you get up, you put them on a sign in your hand, you put them on your forehead. And then this is the tricky part. So if you obey the commandments that I, this is the voice of God, right, and join you upon this day, loving the Lord your God and serving him with all your heart and soul, I will grant you rain for your land and season, the early rain and the late. You shall gather in your new grain and wine and oil. I will also provide grass in the fields for your cattle. You shall thus eat your fill. Take care not to be lured away to serve other gods and bow to them, for the Lord's anger will flare up against you. He will shut up the sky so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its produce. And you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord is assigning to you. So this is now, in, in our time, a very um, controversial prayer, because it seems to say, if you don't do what I say, if you do what I say, <clears throat> you will prosper. If you don't do what I say, you're going to starve and die, and the land is going to turn against you. And then you say, what about human suffering? Like, how does this explain a baby getting leukemia or the Holocaust or something like that is, can you, can you create these kind of straight line rules about how God, is this a real reflection of what God expects? Uh, is it a threat because it's, uh, because he's trying to control human behavior and give people the sort of thing they need to hear in order to do the right thing if they can't come to the right thing intellectually. And we're seeing this in this COVID response, which is right. I mean, we live in a secularizing time. <clears throat> we live in the rise of the nuns and all of that, and how most of the, I think, COVID hawks, people like that, Democrats, on you know, are, are are people who are more comfortable with secularism than people on the other side, and they are just loving the logic of the Shema. You, you know, if you mask, if you socially isolate, if you quarantine, if you do whatever then you will end up prospering. And if you, if you don't, then you will be killed. 
and uh, the world is more complicated than that. And it's like, it's like somebody said the other day on, uh, on Twitter, or last night on Twitter, I can't remember who was very clever that, you know, you thought that maybe what people missed from religion when they went secular were, you know, was like the belief in a loving and benevolent God, but it turns out that what they really miss are the, are the purification rituals. The smiting. They miss the smiting. No, but they also <laughs> miss the purification rituals that that we all live by purification rituals and that and that what what the mitigation strategies for COVID that have been assigned to us personally are are purification rituals. Right? I mean that's well, and the responses then when, I mean, we saw one, we, we should probably, I don't think we mentioned this yet on the podcast, but we, we see another kind of irrational response that looks like doing something, uh, which is that uh, the Biden administration announced it's going to extend the moratorium on student loan repayments because of Omicron. And that actually, that to me is a canary in a coal mine that no one on the right should ignore because that is, that's the beginning of something. It's not the end of something or the extension of something. That is the beginning of permanent COVID emergency power extension, which will be really difficult to roll back uh, unless we have, you know, years worth of, of legal challenges, which we can and should, but that's not going to resolve it quickly enough. The, this is the beginning of permanent government overreach of emergency power. I mean, not the beginning, we've seen other signs, but for this mild variant, which is uh, unfortunately ripping through lots of populations, but is milder and isn't leading to as many hospitalizations and death, that's being used as an excuse to do something that has absolutely nothing to do with COVID. I mean, I think that's an important part. I want to go back because I think I, 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 made, I did something slightly vulgarized when I was talking about something very complicated in relation to the Shema, the point that I wanted to make about this, you know, do what I, you know, do what's right and you will be rewarded and do what's wrong and you will, you will be punished. Um, uh, you know, believing it's, it, it, it's, it's controversial because, uh, because of the complexity of the, of the world. Uh, but it also has about it a sense that, you know, God is involved in your daily life and God is involved in the affairs of, of, of men and, and judges men on a direct and daily basis. Uh, this is a particularly terrifying universe, the universe of COVID and COVID hawkishness and fear, because there is no animating intelligence, right? There is no, there is no overarching, uh, it, impossible to understand as the book of Job would tell you, method in what in, in in what is happening it is a brainless mindless semi-living semi-not living thing a virus that is spreading and mutating and changing and simply existing to remain alive and uh your only talisman against it is a piece of paper over your face or the or 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 acting in ways that are actually desperately anti-human right isolating yourself going being alone or the vaccine which actually is one right. of the things that if you do you will be spared i mean that is, they, it, it is it is more simple in in that case right and they just uh, superimposed the eschatology of climate change over the the covid pandemic <clears throat> it's the same thing that michael creighton observed in 2003 that there's you know this the story is a genesis that we consumed fruit from the tree of knowledge and that we are condemned as a result uh, that is a very similar you know uh, unsatisfying theology because you're 
talking about something that you you're you're create you're anthropomorphizing the the environment around you right in ways that it just doesn't respond well, like it's ultimately a rational it's, thing would. yeah but it's also ultimately pagan right i mean that then you're a then yeah the world the you know the the planet or the ecosystem or something has some kind of collective weird collective uh consciousness or if it doesn't have a collective consciousness it will still act upon you or you know take revenge upon you for your misbehavior or something like that um and it's a yeah uh but i mean i think covid yeah so the vaccine i mean this is an important point so it's like that great joke uh actually the 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 famous joke about uh the guy you know who is like drowning right and he says god save me prays to god to save him and then a guy shows up at a boat and says climb in the boat and 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 the guy says no i'm i'm god i prayed to god i'm a man of god god is going to save me and then a helicopter comes along and says here take this ladder you can climb out and he's like god's going to save me and then he dies and he goes to heaven and he says to god i pray to you why didn't you save me and god says i sent you a boat and a helicopter what are you talking about? So you could even say here, if you wanted to think about this in terms of the purification rituals and everything that God sent us the boat and the helicopter in the form of the vaccine. And then the people, this is why Jared Polis is right. And why, why some of these people who talk about this are right when they say, look, at some point, if you're going to go out without a coat in, you know, in, in, in 20 degree below zero and you get frostbite, I, I can't make you wear the coat. Like, we sent you the helicopter and the boat go drown. Like that's part of what it means to be, you know, a practicing adult, the entire world can't stop to prevent you from drowning. If you're not going to do the things that, you know, that, that will keep you from drowning, which is one of the reasons why this sort of the anti-vax or this world, like make up all kinds of reasons to say it doesn't really work it doesn't work it's a fake thing it isn't real it doesn't have an effect now that there are breakthroughs through the through the vaccine oh, that just proves they don't work on the point of purity something you hear all the time is that you know it's it's it is a toxin it is so it is you know it is not meant to be in our bodies this the vaccine and 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 the line that i've heard people say is i have faith faith in my immune system right right that's there. That, that's so. There's a, there's a there's a there's a purity ritual on the other side of the question right. as well. But that that's also like very Orthodox Jews of my acquaintance who have decided you know who decided to be lax in relation to this have said Hashem, which is what you know very religious Jews call God. Hashem will provide if Hashem wants me to get COVID, I'll get COVID. If he doesn't, he doesn't. And again, that sort of that fails to understand the boat and helicopter analogy. <laughs> To the, to the vaccine. I mean, uh, you know, when we refer to the vaccine being a miracle, that is very close to being the case. Like no, no, no cure or treatment for an ailment of this magnitude has ever come this quickly or been deployed the way this has ever in the history of mankind. It's, it's, it's an astonishing thing that happened. And people are very, some people who are listening to this probably and others like seem very loath to give to to give credit to the miraculous nature of this uh we've gone very uh we've gone very far afield from biden's interview with david muir here uh but uh why not 
you know, we're a couple of days. I don't know. I, every time I hear Biden speak, it sparks thinking about mortality and, and human frailty. So, but maybe that's just me. Um, maybe well, he was when he said pills, but first of all, we didn't get to his, his weak answer about running in 24, which is important and we should get to it. But his thing about pills really probably was a slip because of what the FDA approved yesterday. The FDA approved an antiviral, a Pfizer antiviral that by all accounts and all indications based on their clinical data is another miracle. Um, it's another, it's something that you can give someone who's having an acute case and infection, and it has a 90% success rate of just clearing it up. Um, and we probably haven't even fully internalized the extent to which that represents an off-ramp from all of this, because except, if except you can, if the vaccine prevents you from having a severe case and the pill prevents you from dying. That's it. But this is where the Biden administration's failure is massive because we will not get to that off ramp without the test. You have to test and get that pill within a certain window of time for it to be its most effective. And if we're backlogged on tests and processing tests, then the people who could most benefit from that pill will not get it in time. That's the part where I was like, push him on that. And there was no pushback from the media. But you're right. You're right, uh, Noah, that this it's, it's like Tamiflu. You have to take it within a certain window of time. But that means you have to test positive and get to the doctor and get a prescription filled and start taking it. I don't, I don't know if that's going to be the case, because at a certain point, and once this matures, uh, once we finally internalize what this means, this Omicron variant means, if you're presenting severe symptoms, you're going to be an outlier. You're going to know very early on in your infection that you are not having the same reaction that everyone else around you has. And we haven't figured out that equilibrium yet just because this is new, but it won't be long before we understand, like we understood with the flu that there or pneumonia, that once you're presenting very serious symptoms that do not comport with your standard run-of-the-mill flu, that you should seek medical attention. And okay, so that, that would be, I, I just want to be the add, other one. Add something. But I mean, one of the reasons that the, that the pill is going to be such a massive leap uh, forward is that uh, while Omicron uh, is is clearly milder in symptoms, there is actually no guarantee of a straight linear drop in severity of of, of the illness. It could happen. Some some things some things evolve to be harsher. Some things evolve to be milder. Uh, the fact that Omicron is 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 the dominant strain means that. Um, whatever mutations happen will happen on that, on this very transmissible strain. Um, and if that's a worse variant, right. um, it's going to be extraordinarily important that we, that we are flooded with these pills. And with the test, that's, I mean, that's right. So we're not necessarily talking about just this moment, right? If we are moving into the endemic phase from the pandemic phase, we could have, you know, we'll have variants forever and as abe says some will be weaker some will be stronger and therefore there's going to need to be kind of tests available in perpetuity it's sort of thing that you should be able to just walk into a cvs and they'll have in stock and you'll buy for five bucks if you're it, literally if you if you if you have the sniffles as long as it's cheap enough as long as it's like you know 3.99 or something you have the sniffles you do the test two lines on the test say you're positive and you call your doctor and you get a, you, you get the, you get the pill. Like that's, that's one way that we're probably going to live if we do this rationally. And it, it would be great if we could do that with the flu. The point is that Tamiflu is a imprecise 
uh, Tamiflu is a kind of treatment. Some It helps some people, it doesn't help others. And by the time you get it, it may be too late, right? So uh, th- this would be something that you would want to do, you know, almost prophylactically, like you would take a test almost prophylactically if you, you know, if you sneeze six times. I know that sounds like neurotic, but but it really isn't because it takes, you know, two minutes for the rapid test to show you whether or not you have two lines or one. And if you have two, then you can, then you can get the treatment in an, in an instant, you know? So, so this is something not just for now, but for two years from now or three years from now. And it does mean taking the testing seriously. And there was this weird bias against the idea that people would not know how to administer the home test if they did it at home and they would either get they would get a lot of false negatives. That was always the fear, not not false positives, which are apparently very rare in the case of these home tests, like one in a hundred or false positives. But that people would be, you know, people would wouldn't do it right, and then it wouldn't show up, and then they would think they were fine, and they would kill everybody else. You know, it's all part of the same top-down logic that Christine you're talking about in terms of the federal government. It's kind of paternalistic. Nobody knows how to do this. You can't expect adult Americans who are allowed to cast votes to pick the president and everybody else and pay taxes, but you can't trust them to follow the instructions where you put a couple of drops of uh, of a solution into a little hole and then you take a stick and you put it up your nose and then you then you shove the stick into the antigen test, close it, and see whether there's a positive or a negative. It's not rocket science. And in fact, Michael Mina of Harvard, whom I keep mentioning, like has said, you could even do it easier than that. Like you could make a litmus test where you literally lick a piece of paper. Uh, you know, that is that is not an implausible way to go about this. And and they don't they haven't wanted to do it because in some ways they seem to have wanted to control what it means to be positive. Do you know what I mean? It's like, or or they want to control how people find out. Um, and that, that's an interesting psychological bureaucratic well, to, to make it, for, yeah. To, to make your, to make every individual's understanding of their situation easier is to accept a certain degree of inevitability about all this that, that they're not comfortable with. Right. Like when we're, when we're talking about a world in which you can go into a drugstore without a prescription and get a anti-COVID pill, that world, cannot even begin to be approached by certain a certain mindset you know of, of people in this country who are saying what what do you mean we're, we're gonna, this is going to be around to that extent where you're just going to have to deal with it on your own to it in a daily you know what I mean so as long as it's an emergency measure uh, there is this this sense in which uh, it, it it will be alleviated at some point. It also right. de- it deprives a lot of petty bureaucrats of power as well. And I will say this. I have friends who live in the suburbs of New York City who have been absolutely harassed by their county health officials when a positive COVID test pops up in their house. And we're not talking about in, you know, when the when the out when this all started, when everybody's fear was a little more sensible. We're talking about now when these cases are mild and everyone knows what to do and everyone's vaccinated. Just the har- the level of harassment, the phone calls, the threats, the sort of, again, by petty county level bureaucrats, they will lose that power if it's given back to people to take care of their own health. I fully agree that there's some sort of a, a, a power hunger here on the part of the, the bureaucracy, but it's not a conscious impulse, right? It's too Machiavellian. It's, it's too kind of evil. 
nobody actually behaves that way. You rationalize yourself into that kind of behavior and, and make yourself the good guy in the process. So the, the, the power hungry bureaucrat and the public health official who's maximalist rationalizes themselves into a position like, well, we have to keep the schools open, but we also have to keep children from getting communicable diseases. Like these two completely antithetical positions that anyone who's ever been around a young child knows are incompatible. Right. Um, they, they talk themselves into that sort of thing. Uh, and that's how you know that the ulterior motive is, is something much more dark. I think I've told you this story before. It's my shut, I shut down the Beltway story, but I just want to tell it again because it's interesting about this mindset. So this is probably 1984, 1985, and I'm driving with my friend Todd Lindbergh on the Washington Beltway. Um, you know, which is an eight lane or 10 lane a horrible highway. stretch of driving. I just, right. wanna... yeah. So it's an eight layer, 10 lane highway. We were, we were approaching the famous Mormon temple, which looks like the wizard of Oz. And suddenly the beltway stops. Like there's literally a standstill, like not, it's not traffic. It's like just a standstill. And I happened, I was driving. I happened to be in the, in the far right lane. And I was about 500 feet from the Georgia Avenue exit on the Beltway. And so I pulled off onto the, you know, onto the shoulder in the shoulder lane to drive past the stoppage and exit at Georgia Avenue. And as I'm going, I see that at Georgia Avenue, that's where everything has been stopped. And there is one highway patrolman or highway patrol woman who is standing there like with her arms up. And as I slowly pull to make the right turn to get off at Georgia Avenue, she frantically waves me down. Frantically waves me down. I, I pull, I, I sort of stop the car, I roll down my window and I say, I'm just exiting officer. And she looks at me and says, don't you understand I've shut down the beltway. And I said, yeah, can I, can I, I'm just exiting. I'm not trying to stay on the belt. I'm going to exit here at Georgia Avenue. And she's like, I shut down the belt. And I looked at her and I thought, this is the greatest moment of her life. She's a Maryland, you know, she's a Maryland highway patrolman. And for whatever reason, I don't know what had happened up the road. She had shut the beltway down. I was doing nothing to prevent her from keeping the beltway shut down. I was doing nothing to interfere with her great moment of power, but because I was evading it slightly by exiting and therefore eluding her control, she flew into a rage. Now she could not in fact give me a ticket at the same time and keep the beltway closed on the other. So I just pulled off and left but i always thought i'm not a libertarian but i always thought that this was the great moment had i been <clears throat> a sort of randy and libertarian <clears throat> this would have been the anecdote that would have confirmed my suspicion that government was evil because it empowered the wrong kind of people i don't think she was the wrong kind of person i just think <clears throat> the enormous that the gigantic nature of what she had done, this you know major artery in the in the you know in the in the around the nation's capital, like the the lifeblood of you know uh, of the tra travel around the most important city in the world, and she, you know, 
corporal whoever or sergeant whatever had been had had the power to shut it down so that that is part of the same mindset i think that leads to you know francis collins the director of the you know of the of, of nih and sort of like you know a, a, a man of great accomplishment and kind of a wonderful uh person who has done a great many things saying the other day that he thought that his one great regret was that they hadn't you know done enough studying of human beings at nih to understand why we were so susceptible to misinformation yeah his his claim was that they didn't they didn't know how many people would would reject this vaccine <clears throat> which is nonsense because it just took me like three seconds of Googling to find an NIH sponsored study of, for example, measles, which is hard not to get vaccinated for. You trip and fall into an MMR just by being alive. And still 90% of people have that vaccine and the associated antibodies and 10% don't because that's right. just human nature. And you have, this is, you, you, you're, this is just deliberate, deliberately being obtuse. I don't to think try to justify this sort of, you know, this moral posturing that he's he's taking. I don't give him any credit for that. I'm not giving him any credit. I'm giving I'm, I'm actually I think you misunderstood me a little bit. What I'm saying is that when you get right down to it, even if you're Francis Collins and a man of faith and a person who's dedicated your life to public service, there's some quality in you that says, man, I wish we'd really studied human nature so we could control you better. And not and 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 make sure that your foolishness. Yeah, I was you know, I was getting Skinner box vibes from that statement. Yeah, not, exactly. I mean, the reason yeah. why I'm hostile to it is because the, well, the universe of social the universe of social scientists came out and said uh, this is my music and just started you know like ah oh, yeah. well you didn't listen to us yeah. enough and it was all yeah. just you know professional jealousies competing with each other and subconscious. Yeah. Well, I, I also think uh, you know it's like uh, Francis Collins was somebody who who got a lot of uh, praise and love and respect on the right because he said he believed in God and therefore is one of America's uh, foremost scientific figures. This was considered a wonderful breakthrough, and he got a million dollar prize from the Templeton Foundation and all of that. And but he still is just like somebody who would like to study human beings to control them, which. You know, uh, it's one thing if God wants to control you with the schmods, another if Francis Collins wants to control you with a study. Anyway, um, to move away from our theological musings here, uh, I just want to tell you the holiday season is here and with it come yearly questions of what do I wear to non-ugly sweater parties and how do I maximize my time savoring holiday moments and minimize my time shopping for gifts? Fear not, weary holiday wanderer. Mac Weldon has all the answers, whether it's an office party, a party with family or friends, or just a holiday party of you, your couch, and a game on TV. Mac Weldon has all the essentials to keep you stylish and comfortable throughout the season, and its innovative daily wear system has taken the hard work out of outfit planning with pieces designed to work together for any occasion, saving you time and sparing you any extra holiday stress. We're talking top-notch tops, best-selling bottoms, and underwear and accessories that will please even the scroogiest guys on your list. With Mack Weldon, your holiday heavy lifting will be complete within minutes. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a fan of the cold. Feeling like a walking popsicle just doesn't suit me. But with Mack Weldon's warm knit collection that features shirts, vests, pajama pants, and more, my chilly winter days are behind me. Using innovative technology that uses your own body heat to keep you at the perfect temperature, these products from Mack Weldon will have you saying something you never thought you would. You're ready for the cold this holiday season every guy deserves to wear unforgettable clothes that he loves for the moments with loved ones he'll never forget 
So for 20% off your first order, visit macweldon.com slash commentary and enter promo code commentary. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com slash commentary, promo code commentary for 20% off. Mac Weldon, get it right this holiday season. Okay, so our friend David Frum has a piece. I wanted to sort of explore this a little bit because, you know, it kind of like blew my mind a little bit and not in a good way, but I thought it would be worth having a little conversation in which he defends Biden's uh, congressional management of his um, complicated uh, uh, congressional situation. Biden won big with a bad hand, he says. Okay, so I'm just going to lay this out for you. Um, The past may cast some light on the politics of narrow majorities. Republicans had a bad election in 2000. They lost two seats in the House, reducing their majority in that chamber to a precarious three votes. Republicans lost four seats in the Senate, resulting in a 50-50 tie. Uh, This outcome severely limited the new President Bush's governing options, especially before the terrorist attacks of September 11th. Bush shrank his legislative agenda to two broadly popular items. First, the tax cut that passed the House with 230 votes and the Senate with 58. Then an education bill that passed early in 2002 with 381 votes in the House and 87 in the Senate. Um, Bush took office at a more placid time than Biden did. He arrived with a less ambitious legislative agenda too. But if the times have changed, the grammar of power has not. Relative to its strength in Congress, the Biden administration has proved outstandingly successful in 11 months, Biden has done more with 50 Democratic senators than Barack Obama did with 57. He signed a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill package. Uh, he signed a $1 trillion infrastructure bill in November. He signed some 75 executive orders. He's won confirmation for some 40 liberal judges. Uh, but he, but he, but he, but he, he had some congressional restraints. Okay, so he's trying to make the case that Biden had a good year. Uh, Comparing it to Bush. So Bush shrank his legislative agenda to two items and got them passed, right, before September 11th. Biden expanded his congressional agenda to the Build Back Better bill, which was originally $6 trillion, and then spent nine months not getting it. And getting the the infrastructure bill, once he split it off, that was the equivalent to a bipartisan bill that Bush might have gotten. Uh, and then spent six months having a fight about this. How is this a wildly successful uh, pursuing as his major thing, a bill he didn't get, and therefore downgrading the value of the bill that he did get, meaning the infrastructure bill? Am I am I missing something, or does does David from is David from looking at the long view saying, you know what, Biden did pretty well. I don't know. (laughs) You can't predict the future. So it would be imprudent of us to suggest that this at the end of year one, this is a failed presidency. There's plenty of time to make up lost ground, but it's terrible coaching to pretend as though they didn't lose ground. There's no objective metric you can apply to this administration and it's self-set goals and suggest that they had met even most of them perhaps a plurality, maybe some are in the works, but to suggest that this administration would set out at the outset of its of this term to wrap its hands around the virus, to contain it, to avoid future shutdowns, failed. Abject failure. To uh, After Georgia, they, they created the conditions in their minds where they could cram 40 years of liberal 
desiderata into a single bill and just one big moonshot and they could drag recalcitrant democratic lawmakers along with them failure abject absolute failure and in the process diminished the accomplishments that they did achieve um and then you have crippling economic consequences which have in the minds of a great many voters suggested to them well maybe they weren't so bad under donald trump that's the worst possible outcome democrats could ever possibly want to invite to convince them a, a, a significant number of voters that maybe all that chaos that they had to live with under Donald Trump was preferable to the status quo, existential threat. So yes, this just strikes me as cheerleading for the benefit of wrong claim retweets. Well, and it, I, I agree. And I think that the, the wish casting he's doing here about wanting people to see this bigger picture uh, fails to take into account the reason why Noah's absolutely right about people wondering, hey, maybe it wasn't so bad under Trump and not just saying that as a like, you know, ironic mean. They're saying that as well because of the tone the Biden administration has taken about Americans' concerns about inflation, about Afghanistan, about the virus. They've been kind of, you know, he started out by sort of patting them on the head and going, it's okay, the adults are in charge, which is condescending, but okay, whatever. People are like, fine, we'll take it. And then it quickly shifted into the problem you say is a problem doesn't exist. So they're just like flat out gaslighting. And then it was, well, it's a problem, but we've already solved it. See, when they hadn't really done much to do that. So that that the the tone and, and I know everybody hates and mocks tone policing, but the way the president presents his agenda to the American people matters in terms of how he talks to them. This we said four years of Trump to prove that Biden was going to be the antidote to that. And he proved to be in some ways even worse because he, his dishonesty is masked in a kind of uh, uh, technocratic elitism that that isn't going down well with everybody. To give you an example of that. And that's the sort of very really obnoxious and, and insulting spin that this administration tries to do is yesterday, um, the I think the journal, it was some paper had a report out that suggested, indicated that all the supply chain fears that were going to result in a truncated Christmas ex shopping experience for most American consumers hadn't materialized, like 90% of goods had, had reached store shelves and most everything was getting where it needed to be on time. And then, you know, John Jensaki and Ron Klain took to social media and say, ah, the death of this overhyped narrative. Who hyped the narrative in the first place? Senior administration officials in October were saying, we're, you're not going to get all the stuff you want for Christmas. The narrative is coming from inside the White House. And they say, oh, well, what idiot believed this nonsense? You! With, with that in mind, um, I have to say, of course, David is wrong because Biden failed in the in the very things that he, that Biden himself had come to push as defining his presidency. He was the one saying we are going to do historically transformative things here. And those things didn't happen. This is this is this is this is how Biden wanted to define his presidency. You can now play cleanup and say well, yeah, but if you if you forget what he said, his his his, you know, signature ambitions were, then he then he did a great job. Um, yeah, it's kind of an amazing piece. Also note that he said that he had a wonderful year because he wrote 75 executive orders. I'm sorry, but any president can write an executive order anytime. It doesn't matter. It's got the you know, it's a it's a it's a set of rules that govern the executive branch, not anybody else. And, you know, mazel tov to you. That's really fantastic. Um it's a very strange piece, and I don't really understand the point of it, but he did get it read uh, 
the whole thing was read by Joe Scarborough on on Morning Joe. So I guess that's a <clears throat> that's a net uh, positive. And uh, uh, we are not being read on Morning Joe. So uh, with that, I think we will uh, say goodbye until tomorrow's uh, final newsworthy podcast. Uh, of the year we will discuss the news and then next week we have a series of mini podcasts uh, on the highlights and lowlights of 2021 I am here once more to ask you at the end of this podcast right in the beginning to consider commentary when you are doing your end of year giving commentary of 501c3 nonprofit relies on the generosity of its donors to close our deficit and make it possible for us to continue doing what we're doing in the form of this podcast and our magazine our website we are incredibly grateful for your uh, listenership and we would very much appreciate it if you would uh, consider us in your end of your giving www.commentary.org slash donate for Abe, Noah, and Christina. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.